Good morning. God's grace, His mercy, and His peace are yours all through Jesus, His Son, our Savior. Amen. What's your most valued possession? Uh, Immediately, some of you might think of your house because you pour money into it and it might get a little more valuable throughout the years if you do the right things to it. Others, maybe you have a piece of fine jewelry that has been passed down from generation to generation and with each generation, that piece of jewelry gains more and more value. But I have a specific thing in mind. I think this is something that you cannot really put a price tag on. And it's something that everyone has. And you work tirelessly to attain it and then you work just as tirelessly to keep its value up. Let me rule out some things real quick, though. It's not your family, because you don't own your family. It's not your faith. It's not your Savior, because you don't earn your faith. You don't earn your Savior. You can't do anything to do that. But let's look to Scripture. Let's look to God's Word to see what Jesus has to say or what God has to tell us about a valuable possession. Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Throughout our summer series on the Ten Commandments, we've heard about the ten big things that are important to God. We've heard about things like faith in Him and Him alone, worshiping Him, rest, authority, life, marriage, giving, And now we can add a good name, a good reputation. God finds that extremely valuable for every person in the world. I want you to think of people in your life and how you think about them. What brings them to mind for you? Is it something that they said that was hurtful toward you or a mistake that they made in their lives? whether it was a one-time offense or a repeated uh, action or a repeated thing that they say, so often we think of people in a negative light and we highlight those in our minds. They can do everything they can think of under the sun to try and get back in your good graces, but the pain lingers that they have caused in your lives or the pain that they've caused in their lives. The pain is there and their reputation will never be the same. When people's reputations are anything other than what God intended for them, it makes it hard to exist as a human being. It makes it hard to be in relationships. It makes it difficult sometimes to even get a job. Because when your reputation is is ruined or tarnished in some way, it's like a black mark on your life. God knew that that would be the case for sinful human beings living in a sinful world. Reputations are wiped out in an instant and they take an eternity to build back up like a fire that is, like a forest fire that is uh, brought to the ground and it takes years and years and years before the trees return to the state they were. But God knew that. And so he gave us the eighth commandment as a way to protect this valuable possession that he's given us, that he's entrusted to us. 
And so let's read the words of the Eighth Commandment together, and I want to add the explanation that Martin Luther wrote 500 years ago. Because it gives us a little broader look at what the Eighth Commandment talks about, not just testifying in court, but other, in other walks of life. So let's get that up on the screen and we'll read that together. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, or give him a bad name, but defend him, speak well of him, and take his words and actions in the kindest possible way. All right, on the surface, you might say, you know, that, that sounds pretty easy. Let's see, I'll get called into jury duty at some point within the next couple of years, and I might hear some, um, something that's not true at work or at school, or I might hear my parent or my child say something that really isn't all that nice, and I'll just say, hey, cut that out. Got it. All right. Now I can move on to the other commandments that are bigger and more important. That's a very dangerous way to go in dealing with any of the commandments. Because as soon as we think we are above being tempted or above falling into this sin, that is the exact moment that the devil pounces on you. And when you think you won't fall at all, that is when you fall the hardest. Our hearts and our minds are so susceptible to these types of temptations, these sins of the tongue. Jesus himself in Matthew 15 said this about the mouth. But the things that come out out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. I know we often think about the things that we put into our bodies as the things that are really gross and disgusting and the things that will kill us eventually. And that's what the Pharisees were thinking too right before this because they thought or they they were getting upset that the disciples weren't washing their hands the correct way. But what Jesus is saying here to put them back in their place and to put us in our place is that the most dangerous thing to a human being already is inside you. And it's a heart that is stained by sin. And the number one way that people can tell what your heart looks like? Your tongue. Your tongue is like a bullhorn shouting out what's in your heart. People can tell. Much like a doctor can tell what's wrong with the rest of your body just by looking at your tongue most times when you go in for a checkup. In case you didn't know, that's why you do that. He can tell what's going on in the rest of your body. I think Jesus' words in Matthew 15 stuck very well in the heart of James, his half-brother. James knew and he understood how seriously Jesus took this, the, the use of words in our lives. Later, after Jesus died, rose, and ascended, James wrote a letter talking about how Christians treat these important things. And specifically in chapter 3 of the letter James, he writes about how we use our words. So we're going to look at a few verses from James and we'll look at a few other places throughout the Bible to learn how God wants to teach us to tame 
our tongue. Let's start with the first uh, three verses, 3, 4, and 5 of James chapter 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The first reason James gives us to tame our tongues is because the tongue is powerful. He, he shows us this by making some powerful comparisons. An animal that can weigh upwards of a ton and bucks and kicks and can't be controlled, all of a sudden you put a piece of metal in its mouth and voila, you have controlled this animal. Not perfectly, but you can at least rein him in. Boats have gotten a lot bigger since James's time when he wrote but the mechanics are still the same. You put a small piece of metal or wood or whatever it is in the water and you can steer a a gigantic vessel against the forces of nature, against the wind and the waves. We see forest fires or house fires or city fires and it all starts with one small spark. What do those things have in common other than their size and the, and the punch that they pack? They need to be controlled. They need to be controlled or else they're pretty useless and sometimes even destructive. The tongue needs to be controlled. And it can be used for some good when we do have it controlled. Think of the examples that God gives us in the Bible. God created the world in six days using nothing but his words. Jesus, in John 6, he called himself the bread of life and some people got very confused and and they were so confused that many disciples, it said, started deserting him. Jesus turned to the twelve and said, Are you going to leave me too? Peter's response He goes, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Talk about power. You see it in small doses in our lives today, in very small ways. Maybe the team is rallied to a a, a late second victory after a rousing halftime speech. Or you come home from the most miserable week at work you've ever had, and all of a sudden your spouse or your friend or your child says, Just a few syllables and you forget all about it. Talk about powerful. But Proverbs 18.21 says this, The tongue has the power of life and of death. And those who eat it or those who love it will eat its fruit. How many deaths, suicides, Wars, riots, or acts of violence have been carried out because of a careless or hurtful word. How, how many divorces have happened just because one or two conversations started and then one thing led to another and then it was too late. 
How many reputations have been tarnished, friendships obliterated, self-images destroyed because the spark of the tongue lit a fire and completely wiped out the beautiful landscape that was once there. We can go to things as small as sarcastic uh, jabs, name-calling, any word that is hurtful toward another person. But it doesn't matter to God. It all hurts the same and it all looks the same to him. Any hurtful word we say breaks this commandment. And it all defiles our body and it sends us on the straight path to the fires of hell. That's not me saying it. That's God. That's James saying it. Look at verse 6. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. It's all the same. Think about that. Talk about powerful. By our words, things that seem so insignificant, so little, so minuscule to us, we can be separated from the eternal God for all of time. It could all be solved if we could just tame this little tiny tongue that we have in our mouths. If we could just tame it. In fact, James says in verse 2, right before this section, that if anyone is, uh, is not at fault in what they say, if anyone is perfect in what they say, their whole body is perfect and they are kept in check just like a bridle keeps a horse in check. There's an experiment done a couple of years ago by a psychologist named Matthias Mel. He's at the University of Arizona. He did an experiment about words, not so much the power of words, but just the capacity of words and how we use them in our lives. Really, he was comparing what how many words men used versus how many words women use on a daily basis. That's not the important part of this study. He had some willing subjects being at a university, so he put recording devices on about 300 students for a few weeks. The results came back that men and women alike average about 16,000 words a day. Some bottom out at 700 and others top out at 47,000. So you might find yourself in one of those categories. But for today, let's talk about that average. Let's say every one of you has a limit of 16,000 words today. I'm in trouble if that's the case. 16,000 words. Would that change your approach to what you say? Would that change whether you're using your words for life or for death? For good or for evil? I think it would for the first five seconds after you leave church. And then the temptations come. Maybe you're talking to someone in back and they say, did you hear about? Or you get in the car and turn on the radio. Oh, wait until you hear about. And then our mind goes and goes and goes. We think about the worst case scenario and we want to talk about it because it's the worst case for other people. We love pushing people down and down and down and down and down because it raises us up the totem pole of our hearts. It's a struggle. Even when we try as hard as we can 
We can't do anything to tame our tongue. James talks about that in the next verses, verses 7 and 8. He says, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The second reason James gives to tame our tongue is because it is poisonous. Now, think about what a poisonous tongue means. Maybe you're asking yourself that. What what does it mean to have a poisonous tongue? Think about what poison does. It invades a host, whether it's a a human being, an animal, uh, a plant. It invades the host and it slowly or quickly kills it off. Sometimes without the host even realizing what's happening. And words, they really do the same. Words have no outer effect. You can call me a name and I won't get a scrape on my arm. You can say something mean about me and I won't bruise. The old saying goes, sticks and stones may break my bones, but, bones, but words will never hurt me. But if you've ever had a lie told about you, if you've ever had your reputation tarnished by someone, some, something someone said, you know that that saying is anything but true. Sticks and stones may break my bones and words will probably kill me. We're so familiar with the powerful poison that is in our lives. And sometimes we don't even realize what's eating away at us until someone helps us uncover it, until someone goes, what's eating at you? And it's a poison of painful words. We know the poison. We're familiar with the poison and yet we use the poison to our advantage to get back at a coworker, to get back at a sibling, to abuse our authority with our children, to say whatever we want because, well, we can. We're parents. Or you've had a long day at school and you think you can say whatever you want about your parents. We use that poison, those, those jabs to get right into their heart because we know exactly what to say to hurt them. It's a struggle. It's a struggle and it, it keeps us all the way, it, it drives us all the way to hell. But that's why we're here, right? We come to church and we're okay. Well, look in the next section of James, verses 9 through 12. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father and, we, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. We lie about others or we lie to others and we try to cover it up but James sets the record straight that doesn't fly we try to cover up our our sins with our good works and we lie to ourselves and we lie to God when we do that and when we lie about others or to others we lie right to God's face because they are humans are made in God's likeness 
even if our good works counted for something, we couldn't do enough to cover up one lie because that one lie, one little white lie, separates us from God forever. James said so. So what are we to do? Just fatalistically resign ourselves that we're going to be in hell and there's nothing we can do about it? Wow, thanks for the encouraging message, Vicar. Have fun in Wisconsin. That's not the case. Because the Bible has so much more to say about your future, about your here and now, and about how God views you. Remember the passage that I talked about in John 6 where Peter said, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Kind of skipped over that, but I bring it back now because the true power of Jesus' words are in the healing that they bring. Your tongue may be powerful. Your tongue may be poisonous, but it is also healed by the works and the words of Jesus. The Bible makes a big deal about Jesus' words. If you have a special edition that has the red words, you're never going to miss a word of Jesus because they're highlighted specially for you. In his life, Jesus just spoke to people and they got up and walked. They saw they were healed of lifelong diseases. And even more miraculous than that is when Jesus spoke to people, their sins were forgiven. They were ushered into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' words were flawless, like Psalm 12 says. Psalm 12, verse 6. Let's read this together. The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. You will not, you will not find a blemish in Jesus' words. People have tried and failed. Jesus never lied one time. He never belittled his disciples. He never gossiped about the Pharisees behind their backs. Instead, he spoke the truth in love at every moment of his life. And yet, when the time came, Jesus kept his mouth shut, he kept his lips sealed. When his reputation was being tarnished and lies were being told about him and people were conspiring against him, we heard about it in First Peter in that second reading. Jesus did not raise his voice in retaliation. This is what Isaiah says about the Savior. Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Jesus did not retaliate, but he still spoke. He had tamed his tongue to the point where instead of speaking retaliation and judgment on those who, who killed him and those who lied about him, he spoke forgiveness and he spoke love. He spoke words in connection to the full and free forgiveness that he was dying to win for you. So what does that do for us now? That was 2,000 years ago. Well, Jesus' love, Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' example, 
gives you the power to say no to those hurtful things that are brewing in your heart and just waiting to come out of your mouth. It also gives you the power and it moves you to act and speak in love and forgiveness instead of tearing down and belittling, building up, encouraging, praising. You have the power to do that now. But I think one of the most important things that Jesus' sacrifice does for you is it has a remedy for that poison that's sitting in your heart. Almost all of us, I can assume, have been hurt by words. Let Jesus draw that poison out of you and replace it with the comfort of his love and the comfort of his cross. It seems like every week in this Ten Commandments series, we're left saying at the end, well, we're still going to struggle with this. It's going to be a problem until Judgment Day comes. That's true for this one too. I'm still going to struggle with my speech. You're still going to struggle with your speech. We're going to struggle until Jesus comes and brings us to heaven. But we do get a glimpse of heaven and what it will be like. From Jesus' apostle, John. And John saw many visions of heaven when he was in exile and he wrote about them in a book called Revelation. And in one particular instance, John writes about a lamb. A lamb that we've heard about before in Scripture. The lamb who was silent before its shearers. And in this chapter, chapter 14, John writes that there are the 144,000 surrounding the lamb and singing praises. The 144,000? You. It's a symbolic number that represents all Christians of all time, past, present, and future. We are there singing praises to the Lamb and this is what John says about them. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. God doesn't see lies when he looks at you. When he examines your tongue like a doctor, he doesn't see lies. Your tongue is powerful, your tongue is poisonous, but Jesus has healed it fully and completely. Now use Jesus' example. Use Jesus' sacrifice as a remedy to your soul, as a remedy to your mouth as you continue to tame your tongue. Amen.